Good morning. We are now in our series on Sermon on the Mount, and uh, we are a few weeks in now where uh, we are looking at the teachings of Jesus uh, through the what we call the Sermon on the Mount, and that is essentially where Jesus went up on a hillside, a tall mountain, and he sat down and his disciples came to him, the, the crowds that he had just healed came to him, and, and he began to teach them about the kingdom of heaven. And uh, we saw in the first week how we talked about the kingdom of heaven and what that looked like, and, and uh, so we're going to approach this uh, Sermon on the Mount from the book of Matthew, because Matthew organizes it so beautifully, and it's easy to remember, it's easy to meditate on, and, and if you like numbers, the book of Matthew records the Sermon on the Mount in just three chapters, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. It's a little over 100 verses. Uh, I think there's 2,000 words in it. Like, it's not that long of a sermon, but in those 12 minutes that it takes you to read those three chapters, uh, it can incredibly transform your life. That if we would just open up our ears to hear what God is saying in those three chapters, it'll change us forever. And that's what we're believing because as we approach it and see what Jesus is talking about, we, we see that he does not hold back, that he is attacking, he is stepping in and addressing head on the issues in our life, the ways of our life that we tend to drift from him. And we, we drift from him and, and go our own way and do things our own way. And so he's going to talk about that. He's going to talk about uh, how we uh, are emotional people and how we get angry and, and how we lust and how we have anxiety and how we are doing things opposite of his kingdom. And so that we, uh, he's, reorienting, he's reorienting us to see that though we live in the kingdom of this world, we're just citizens, of, we're, we're aliens passing through, that we're citizens of another kingdom, and that's the kingdom of heaven. And now when we talk about the kingdom of heaven, you might think, well, that's just for me, you know, in the afterlife. After I pass away, then I'm going to inherit all the promises and, and the treasures and, and all these things that God promises and talks about the kingdom of heaven. But we saw in Matthew, as we read two weeks ago, that the kingdom of heaven is not a uh, is not just far off and, and after we pass away, but Jesus comes preaching that the kingdom of heaven is at hand, that it's right now, that it's here and now. And so then we have this understanding that the kingdom of heaven is a right now kingdom, but also a not yet kingdom. That there's things right now that we can, we can do and operate in and possess, but there's also a future fulfillment in the kingdom of heaven of things to come. And so when, when the Bible talks about, you know, storing up treasures in heaven, those are these not yet things that we once will possess. But, but Jesus shows us that there's a way of life that we can, we can live according to the kingdom of heaven. And we can even pray in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus prays and he says, your will be done, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And so we're pulling heaven down. Jesus pulled heaven down. And, and so we, get to, we got to see that the first week of, of the kingdom of heaven. And if you missed that, I'd encourage you to go back and, and watch it to uh, bring some understanding around the kingdom of heaven. And so Jesus uses the Sermon on the Mount to bring the kingdom of God to earth. And the, and the Sermon on the Mount is one of the five big pillars that Jesus uses um, but it's one of the most um, 
uh, remembered and impactful ones that we, uh, that we look at. And so uh, we're going to tackle that. And, and how I would like to start tackling uh, the, the Sermon on the Mount is by reading the first 11 verses of Matthew chapter 5. And um, we, we read some of it last week and some of it the week before, and we're still there. And, and so we're going to be in Matthew 5, 1 through 11 for a couple more weeks. But if you would take your Bibles out or take your phones out, or if you want to follow along on the screen, we're going to do like we normally do, and that is we're going to stand for the reading of the Word. We're going to read together, and then, then we'll pray and be seated. If you have your Bibles, you found your place in Matthew chapter 5, or you would just like to look at the screen, but you're ready, say, let's go. So seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and he sat down, and his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice, be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who are before you. Father, we thank you for this word that is a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path. And we just ask that it would plant a, a seed in good soil. So we prepare our soil, prepare our hearts, that the, the seed, the word, might be implanted in us and spring forth life, harvest, great fruit. And so, Father, we just get ready to receive what you have. Speak, for your servant is listening. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You can be seated today. As we tackle... Part one of the Beatitudes, Jesus starts with these nine blessings. And these blessings, we, we need to understand this isn't the 21st century type of blessings that maybe our, our mindset go to. This isn't nine ways to live a blessed life. This isn't how to get the blessings of the Lord on your life. These aren't some do's like, if I just do this, then God will pour out blessings. Matter of fact, that word blessing there, a blessed is not about pouring out anything. It is about possessing something. And so this word blessed from the Bible is not, well, if I do this, God's just going to pour out a blessing on me. No, what he's saying is, is that people who live this way have been touched by God. They, they have, Jesus has totally transformed them. Thus, they are blessed. Because God chose to touch them and transform them and change them, they now live a certain way. They've got certain characteristics and certain traits and a different lifestyle than the world. And thus, when they live this way and walk this out, other people look at them and say, they're blessed. They're flourishing. They are favored by the Lord. And so we're not looking at this to achieve anything or, or to earn anything. We're, we're looking at simply the lifestyle of those who have been touched by God. And that word blessed there literally means it's an internal joy. 
that cannot be taken or shaken or robbed. It's an internal joy on the inside that God gives you that your, your exterior circumstances don't determine. So it doesn't matter what's happening, what's going on, nothing can rob you of that joy because you've been touched by God, filled with the Holy Spirit, and thus you have this type of joy. And so it's not a, a worldly blessing. Though there are principles in the Bible where we see God pour out blessings on his children in this world, that's not the context of this. And so we just want to get in the right frame of mind, the right lens. We want to see it through the context in which the, the Holy Spirit wanted it to be interpreted. And so we see that this is a kingdom blessing and that Jesus is, is saying that when you live in the ways of the kingdom, when you're a citizen of this kingdom, this kingdom of heaven, you're going to be blessed. And so uh, we see that it's a totally different mind frame. And we, we actually tackled the first blessed there a couple of weeks back when we talked about the kingdom of heaven, and it was those who are poor in spirit. Now, if we're going to get in the right frame of mind, the right lens, and, and define blessed correctly, then two weeks ago we defined poor in spirit correctly. That Poor in spirit is not uh, meaning poor financially. It's meaning poor spiritually. That when I come to the understanding that I am nothing apart from Christ, that I am deprived and, and stripped back. Like there is nothing good in me. I can't save myself. I can't earn my way into heaven. When I, when I take on that posture, when my spirit recognizes that I am no good and that I can't accomplish anything on my own, that I need Jesus, I need a Savior, that I'm poor in spirit. And, it, and we, I made the case that, that poor in spirit is the most important one out of all of these. Matter of fact, I believe that that's the first step to be able to uh, walk in these other lifestyles and understand what the Bible's talking about. We must first be poor in spirit, recognizing that we are nothing, that, that we need our Creator to touch us. And so these each build off of one another. And I want to show us today that as we get into it, they're just building off of each other. So we're poor in spirit. And then... We build off of that and we go to step, we go to verse 4 in Matthew chapter 5 where he says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. What? If I mourn, then I'm blessed? If I'm mourning, then people are going to look at me and say, Oh, he's, he's favored by God. Oh, he's blessed by God. What? I'm going to receive comfort if I mourn. Well, that's promising. Like, I, I need that. But again, if we're looking through the right lens, what does it mean to mourn? What is the Bible talking about? What is Jesus saying when he says, blessed are those who mourn? You see, there's two types of mourning in the Bible. There's mourning that we are most familiar with. That's mourning over the loss of someone or something. You're grieving, you're mourning the death of someone or the losing of something. But there's also a different type of mourning in the Bible, which this is referring to. And it's talking about the mourning over sin. That you are mourning over your sin. Now, I don't know about you, but can you think of the last time maybe that you mourned over your sin? I know I felt guilty over my sin. I felt convicted over my sin. But what Jesus is saying is that blessed are you when you mourn over your sin. I love what the amplified version of, the, of this verse 
uh, gives us because it, it gives us some insight into the, the Greek writing and gives us kind of an explanation there. It says blessed or forgiven, refreshed by God as it starts to define it. It says are those who mourn over their sins and they repent. They're mourning over their sins and they repent. Well, that makes sense because Jesus said, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so they're, they're mourning over their sins and repenting for they will be comforted. It says when the burden of that sin is lifted. So that comfort there is not the same kind of comfort when it says he's near to the brokenhearted. That comfort there is the comfort that we receive when the burden of sin is lifted. How many of you know that sin is a burden? That, it, that, that sin brings pleasure, but it also brings pressure. That sin will bring you some satisfaction, but it also leaves you hurting and helpless and broken. There's always a pressing with sin. And Jesus promises us that if we will come poor in spirit and we'll come mourning over our sin, that that, that burden that has been placed on us will be lifted. That pressure, that anxiety, every, that, that addiction will be lifted. That's why Jesus said, come to me all who are weary and heavy burdened. So I'll give you rest. Take my burden upon you. You see, the burden of salvation is so much lighter than the burden of sin. And when we take on this posture, we realize, God, I can't take this away from myself. I can't do this on my own. It's too heavy. It's too pressing. It's breaking me. It's crushing me. I'm mourning. I'm grieving over the things that I do. It's that tension that Paul wrote about in Romans chapter 7. He said, for that which I want to do, it's that which I don't. And that which I don't want to do, it's the very thing that I do. It's the sin in our life that that creeps in and crawls on us and overshadows us. It's that darkness. And Jesus says, it can be lifted. It can be lifted. Let me tell you today, Jesus is the only one that can lift the burden of sin. He's the only one that can set you free. He's the only one that can save you. He's the only one that can restore and heal and break chains of addiction on your life. And Jesus looks at his disciples and out to the crowd he says, blessed are you when you mourn over your own sin, for you shall be comforted. That sin will be lifted. And I asked myself that question. I said, when's the last time I've looked in the mirror and my sin has just broken my heart? When's the last time I've looked in the mirror and mourned over my sin? Not tried to hide it. Not try to tuck it away. Put on a good face. But when's the last time I looked at the condition of my heart and I mourned and I wept over how wicked, how wicked I am? James chapter 4, James, the, the brother of Jesus says, draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded he says, be wretched, mourn, weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Why? Because you're a sinner and your heart is not pure. It should twist you up inside. It should cause you to mourn and to weep because we're nothing without Christ. 
You see, we can understand the power of our sin. We can understand how, it, how it's so powerful and it keeps us bound and how it keeps us far from God. It all makes sense when we experience the power of the cross. The moment that you realize the power of the cross and all that has been done, then it shows you so clearly how messed up we really are. And so when I understand the power of my sin, then I experience the power of the cross. When I realize how powerful sin is in my life, it is then that I can realize the wonder-working power of the cross. You see, the ugliness of my sin, it only magnifies the beauty of Christ and His sacrifice. And so we must, we must realize first how sinful and, and wicked we are. And then we can experience even more powerfully the cross. It's, it's why those who are bound by addiction, those who have come from such darkness, those who have been so far from God for so long, it's why when they give their life to Christ and Christ touches them and changes them and heals them, they are what we call radical, right? They're on fire for God. It's because they realize how bound they were, how dark they were. They realize how far they were, how much they needed God to touch them. And when he touches them, it changes them forever. And they can't help but shout. They can't help but scream. They can't help but dance. They can't help but tell somebody, God did this for me and he'll do it for you. And so we've got to realize how dark we were. That place I used to be in. The life I used to live and how Christ chose to save me. And when I mourn over that and weep over that, then I receive the comfort that my spirit needs. And so I think about that. And what other kingdom on this planet can you rebel against the king and the king come and comfort you? What other kingdom can you be so against the ways of the king and yet he chooses to die for you, to save you, to lift that burden off of you. It shows me that there's no king like King Jesus. That there's no king like King Jesus. And so we mourn not like the world. We mourn, it's a spiritual mourning. It's a godly mourning. Did you know the Bible actually talks about godly grief? That there's a type of grief and mourning that is godly. We find it in 2 Corinthians Chapter uh, 7, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10 tells us that for godly grief, it produces repentance. That when I mourn over my sin, then I, it leads me to repentance. And when I'm, I'm repentant, that means I'm turning away from it. Then what does it lead to? It leads to salvation, to life, to being a part of the kingdom of God without any regrets. I don't know about you, but I don't have any regrets of my past life. I don't have any regrets of my BC days before God touched my life. I don't have any of those regrets. It says, whereas worldly grief, it produces death. It produces death. And so God is comforting us as we mourn and grieve and it leads us to salvation. It frees us from our sin. You know, the wages of sin, the payment for sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life. And so Jesus didn't even, Jesus didn't just mourn over sin. He conquered sin. 
that he paid the price. He, he paid the bill. That King Jesus frees us from whatever has us bound. That he wants to free us. And, and I know it's an upside down kingdom. What king wants to free his people? What king wants to empower them with boldness and, and gifts and, and make them more than a conqueror? What king wants to do that? It's King Jesus. It's an upside down, countercultural Jesus. It's a countercultural kingdom. And so, as we mourn over our sin, I want us to also see that it's not just mourning over our sin, it's mourning over the sin of others. That when you mourn over sin, it's not just your sin, but it's the sin of others as well. And we see Jesus in Luke chapter 19. It says in verse 41, When he drew near to the city, he wept over it. When he drew near to Jerusalem, to his people, he wept over them. Why? Because they didn't even, the, the Messiah was in the room and they didn't even know it. Salvation was theirs. It was at hand for them. And they rejected him, despised him, beat him, and abused him. And so it says that he drew near to the city. He saw their hardness of heart. He saw their wickedness. He saw the sin that overshadowed the city and he wept. He wept. So if I'm going to look in the mirror and weep over my own sin, then I would say to the saved folks, when's the last time you wept over somebody else's sin? When's the last time you looked at your family, your friends, your church, your neighbors, your co-workers, and you wept because of their sin, because of their separation from God, because they're far from Him and they're broken. When is the last time that we wept? The world needs more weepers, more people that are weeping after the lost, not judging the lost. The world does a good job at judging. The world does a good job at, cance at canceling people. The world does a good job they're pushing people away and Jesus weeps over them. He calls us to weep over those. We should be mourning over the lost, realizing that they're not our enemies. That the, the people of the world are not your enemy. That people that think different than you, vote different than you, look different than you, believe different than you, are not your enemy. We have one enemy. And his name is Satan. And he's a defeated foe. He's the only enemy that we have. People are not our enemies. We should be weeping over them, grieving over them. And that godly grief, it produces things. That means we're moving. We don't just say, I'm sorry. It leads us to action. That if I truly am weeping over those who don't know him yet, well, then I better be ready to tell them about him. I better be ready to share my testimony. I better be ready to share the gospel to them. And so we, we weep over those people, you see, as citizens of this kingdom that we're talking about, that Jesus is presenting on a hillside. We're citizens of heaven. We're poor in spirit. We're realizing that we're sinners in need of a Savior. So we mourn and we, we mourn over our sin and the sin of others. We receive salvation. And as we have that spirit, it strips us of pride, of arrogance, of independence, it strips us and makes us realize that we are nothing apart from Him. And the moment that we're stripped like that, then we can take on the heart of the next blessing. In chapter 5, verse 5, it says, Blessed are the meek, so our hearts go 
from proud to meek. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now the meek, if we're being honest, it's not an everyday type of word. Matter of fact, if I, if I use the word meek, it doesn't sound like it should be coming out of my mouth. It sounds passive. It sounds weak. It sounds sissy. Meek's not manly. I don't use the word meek. But meekness, make no mistake, is not weakness. Meekness is not weakness. Meek does not equate to weak. Meek is not weak. Matter of fact, meek means strength. Meek simply is strength under control. It's strength under control. The imagery here of this Greek word for meek is those who are trained by the sword. They know how to use the sword. They're skilled in the sword, but yet they keep it sheathed. They keep it covered. It is those who know how to fight, but choose not to swing. It is those who know how to kill you, but they choose not to. It is strength under control. It is submissive to its master. It's like a Clydesdale, the most powerful horse who can go wherever it wants to go and do whatever it wants to do, but yet it, it submits itself to the, to the bit and the bridle. It submits itself to the control of its master. So when we are meek in heart, that means we are just submitting ourselves to, the, to Jesus. We're submitting ourselves to our king. And so it is a, it's a great strength that we have, but it's a surrendered strength. It, it shows that I am nothing, that I am not important, that I am not strong. Matter of fact, that's why Paul said, when I am weak, then I am strong, because it is in Christ. It is his strength. That's the paradox of meekness, is that is, it seems to be weak, but yet it is when I am in that weak state that I am strong that the Lord strengthens me. And so I have this meekness about me, this humbleness about me. I'm submissive is what it's, what, what it's talking about. And Jesus embodies this better than any other person. He is a king that is mighty, but also a king that is meek. Matthew 21 gives us insight to the meekness of our Savior. It says in verse 5, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you. So get ready. Here comes your king. And how does he come? Humble. That's meek. Humble. Mounted on a donkey. A colt. A foal. A fowl of, of a beast of burden. Then in Matthew 11, we all know this scripture. Jesus says, take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle. That's the root word for meek in the Greek. I am gentle, lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. And so we, we see Jesus was meek, but we know Jesus wasn't soft. We know Jesus had power and authority and confidence and boldness and walked in such, but yet his heart was lowly and meek and humble. He was our king that was mighty, but yet meek means it was under control, that he submitted to the Father, that not my will be done, but your will. And so when he was in the garden praying, God, let this cup pass from me. He could have made it pass. He was 100% God and 100% man. He could have made it pass. He could have used his God side, if you will. But he said, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And it's so upside down from the kingdom of this world because the kingdom of this world says, 
that you need to be powerful. You need to be in, in charge and control and get yours. And you need, to, you need to make sure that you rise to the top and then you show them what you're made of. Show them who's, in, who's the boss. Show them who's in control. And Jesus says, not in my kingdom. It says, if you want to be first, got to be last. He says, if you want a seat at the table, you better get down and serve. He says, if you're too big to serve, you're too small to lead. That's the kingdom of heaven. And so we're meek. And he says, you inherit. You inherit the earth. What does that mean? You inherit the land. That as, as you are living this lifestyle, God's going to give you what you need. His promises for you. He's gonna, you're going to inherit the land. When we read the word inherit, that means I didn't earn it. If your parents gave you something, you inherited something, you didn't earn it. Now, I know that we live in a world of entitlement, a culture of entitlement that I deserve it. But no, you didn't, you didn't deserve it. You didn't earn it. He's giving you the land. That's why he says in Matthew uh, 6.33, to seek first the kingdom of God and all his righteousness, and then that'll be added to you. So seek him first. And so we're meek. We live this meek life. And then if we'll go to verse 6. As we read verse 6, and I think about meekness and how we're just building off of, it's a ladder. We're just getting higher and higher. The reality is, is that when I look at my sin, I don't mourn over it. I desire it. When I look at my heart, I'm not always humble and lowly. I'm, I'm prideful and arrogant and I want to I get it. I want to grind. I want to go after all that God has for me. And then he hits me with verse 6. He says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. We all have this need to be satisfied. And, and, and the Bible reveals to us that our satisfaction is tied to our appetite. That what we're hungering for, what we're thirsty for, what we crave, that is what we will fill ourselves up with. That we were all born with a desire to be satisfied, to be complete, to be whole. And as we look at our life, we have to ask ourselves this question, are we satisfied? Or am I hungering and thirsting for more? You see, when he says satisfied, it's not talking about just being full. This word there means a, a sustaining fullness, a sustaining satisfaction, one that lasts. Now, if you just want to get full, all you got to do is eat some Chinese food, right? It's cheap. It tastes good. It's my go-to. If I'm starving, I want Grand Buffet. I want some Chinese food. That's my spot. But how many of you know you pay $16 for the buffet, and by the time you get in the car, you're hungry, right? You're hungry, and you have a headache. And you're like, what in the world? It's because we're desiring, we're hungering and thirsting after something that looks good, tastes good, but has no nutritional value. It has no benefit to us. And can I tell you, I hate to compare General Show's chicken to sin, but it looks good and it tastes good, but it has no nutritional value. Sin looks good. It's got protein. It's cheap and it fills me up, but it leaves me worse. 
than when I was before. And Jesus is showing us that we're seeking satisfaction in the wrong places, that our appetite's got to change, that our hunger's got to change. That's why we've been fasting. When you fast, all of a sudden, you're hungry for something different. Your palate changes. Your taste changes. What used to satisfy you doesn't satisfy you anymore. What you used to give into doesn't, doesn't bring any pleasure to you anymore. So you're starving your flesh and you're feeding your spirit. That's why, that's why we fast. And Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after God's ways, not the world's ways. Knowing that we long to be full, he brings our attention to what are you feeding yourself? What are you hungry for? Hunger and thirst, that means a deep longing for something. Like you're dehydrated, like you're starving, you're hungering and thirsting. And we all know we got to eat, we got to drink. And so we're either feasting on the things of this world or we're feasting on the things in this word. And Jesus says, what is it? Which one is it? Which one are you hungry for? Are you hungry for that Chinese food? Are you hungry for sin? Are you hungry for something that will actually last and satisfy you and complete you and flow from you and that way other people can taste and see that the Lord is good? Do you have a hunger for the things of God? I believe the Lord is showing us and telling us today that today is the day that we get our hunger back for the things of God, that we no longer hunger for sin and thirst for sin. And we no longer hunger for the things of this world that don't satisfy us. We hunger and thirst for righteousness. And we seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And we deny our flesh. Today, we get our hunger back for the things of the Lord. I love what Philippians chapter 3 tells us. Philippians 3 says, for many, for many, the masses, the world, the wide gate for many of whom I have told you about. And now I even tell you with tears, Paul's mourning over the lost and those who are living in sin. He says they're enemies of the cross. God didn't make them enemies of the cross. They made themselves enemies of the cross because they chose to turn and, and do their own thing. And it says in verse 19, when we live this way, when we live the ways of the world, the end is destruction. And he gives us some insight. He says, their God is their belly. It's their flesh. It's what satisfies them. It's what they hunger for, their flesh. And their glory is in their shame. And their minds are set on earthly things. He says, their God is their belly. Are we hungering and thirsting after whatever brings pleasure to me? Whatever I think will satisfy me. Am I doing it for myself? Am I doing it for selfish gain? Or am I doing it for my king? Am I hungering and thirsting after righteousness? Righteousness means right living, the right ways, that I'm right before God. There's three different righteousnesses in the Bible. And it all talks about just being right. You're living right. You're doing right. You're made right. You are the righteousness of God. And so we're supposed to be setting our, our minds, our hunger, our bellies should submit to God. And so we hunger after 
righteousness. Proverbs 12 tells us that as we do this, as we live this, we walk a path of righteousness and it results in life. And in this pathway, there is no death. So we live in right standing before the Lord. We live in righteousness. We will not be satisfied until we've tasted and seen that He is good. He is only good. It is only Him who can satisfy us. And so we see He sets these examples. He shows us the way. He lays it before us. And as we talked about a couple weeks ago, we're all faced now with a choice. As the hearers heard Jesus on the side of the mountain is the same as we hear him today. That now that we know we're faced with a decision, will we continue on the path of this world, the life that we've been living, living, or will we repent? Will we turn and live as citizens of heaven? The choice is ours. And the truth is, is that Jesus didn't just preach it, He lived it. He embodied all that we talked about. He mourned. He grieved over sin and the sins of others. He wept. He was meek. Though he was mighty, he he was meek. And he also was righteous. His ways were righteous. He was in right standing with the Lord. And so as you come into his kingdom, the king that we serve is not not a king that cannot sympathize with his citizens. We serve a king that has faced everything that you're facing. Every temptation, every sin, every heartache, every hurt. We serve a king that sympathizes with you. And thus, because he sympathizes, and because he can relate, and because he's not a far-off king in some other kingdom that's in the heavens, but he is a king in a kingdom that has come to earth, He extends an invitation to the people. And I love that God chose to use Isaiah to prophesy about this invitation hundreds of years before the Messiah would be born. And today I want us to close listening to Isaiah chapter 55. These are the words of Isaiah inspired by the Holy Spirit, but this is Jesus speaking to you. And Jesus says, come, anyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? And why do you labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Jesus is telling us that if we'll just come, if we'll just come to him, And our brokenness, our wickedness, our hardness of heart, if we'll just come, He will give us peace, life, salvation. He'll give you all that you're struggling to get in this world. All that you're chasing after is found in Jesus. 
And so that's why he says you can find rest. You can find rest. You don't have to keep going. You can rest in me. So he says, come, seek the Lord while he may be found. And that's what we're going to do in this moment. Seek the Lord while he still is able to be found. Can we pray together? Would you bow your heads? Father, we bow our heads right now to position our hearts where there's no distraction and we can hear clearly from you. We want to hear from heaven today. God, we bow before you in reflection, thinking on the words that you just spoke, thinking on the things you just dropped in our spirit. And we just choose to come to you, to draw near to you. We want to find rest for our souls. God, we're weary. We're heavy burdened. The yoke of this world is tight, dragging me all over the place. And God, as I try to live in this kingdom, I've realized that I've adopted the ways of that kingdom. And I've become all about me, myself, and I. I've become all about making a name for myself, trying to get things and do things and trying to grind and hustle and make my way to the top. But Lord, I repent and I turn and I come to you poor in spirit, meek and mourning over my sin and the sins of my family, the sins of my church and the sins of my friends. And so Holy Spirit, would you now speak to us, speak to your children who are seeking you. And as we're seeking the Lord today, if you're in the room and your first step is to come to Him and find salvation, freedom from sin, and you want that burden to be lifted off of you, the Bible says you're a new creation now in Christ Jesus, that the old will be gone and the new will come upon you. That if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, that God raised him from the dead and that he is alive today. He says you can have that free gift of salvation where the Holy Spirit, God's presence will live in you, flow through you. That you will be with him in the kingdom of heaven in the future, but even right now, you can experience the kingdom of heaven on earth. Citizens of a new kingdom. If that's you today, You're saying, I'm surrendering my heart to Jesus. I'm surrendering my life to Him. I would love to pray with you. We're not going to embarrass you, but in a moment, we're all going to stand together. We're going to move into a time of response. Our prayer team will be on the side walls and people will go to them for prayer, for healing, for restoration, for whatever they're believing God for. And I would encourage you, if today's the day you're giving your life to Christ, that you would go to them. They have a Bible for you, a new believer's guide for you. More than that, they want to pray with you and celebrate with you and encourage you, link arms with you and welcome you into the family. But I want to know today who it is that I'm praying for, who it is that's going to go to them, who it is that God's touching. And so while everybody else right now is praying, doing business with the Lord, your first and foremost business is to receive Jesus as your Savior and your Lord. If that's you, would you lift up your hand and say, that's me. I'm giving my life to Christ. I see your hand, sir. I see your hand, sir. Anybody else? 
Make sure I can see you. I'm giving my life to Christ. Thank you. Thank you. I see your hand. You can put them down as quietly as possible all over this house. May we stand to our feet, prepare our hearts to worship. I want us to pray for those who raised their hands or those who, who didn't raise their hand, but they're still giving their life to Christ today. We're going to pray for them and welcome them into the family. Then we're going to go back into worship and invite the presence of the Lord to come and to meet us here and to touch us so that we can go out and be the church. And so, Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your presence. We thank you, God, that your word declares that when it goes forth, it doesn't return void. And we just saw, Father, people surrender their life to you. And so we celebrate them, God. We welcome them into the family. We welcome them home, God. And we thank you for saving them and rescuing them just like you did for me, God. You did it for me, God, and you're doing it for them. And so I thank you for that. I thank you, Lord, that you meet every need, that there's not a sinner too far gone, there's not a need too great, that you, God, are more than able. And so we just open our hearts and say, Holy Spirit, you're welcome in this room. Would you come and meet us in this place? Flood us, oh God. Flood us with your presence. Fill us up and send us out. And so, Father, we right now worship you as we respond to what you're doing. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen.